I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And Shakespeare's right. The smell of a rose is sweet. It's a scent that's been bottled and stored for centuries. But it's not just its perfume that has been famous throughout history. The image of a rose extends as a symbol from the Greek goddess Aphrodite to our very own Tudor dynasty. It's most often depicted in a brilliant shade of red, but of course it exists in a whole range of colours, from bright whites to vivid pinks, vibrant yellows and deep oranges. But how can we give new interest to this familiar plant in our gardens? That's what we'll be chatting about with famed rose expert Michael Marriott, who'll be talking us through the world of scents that this bloom has to offer, along with some unique insight on the magic of training roses through trees. We'll also be talking to our knowledgeable team of advisors to help with all of your fawny rose-growing issues. And we'll be back in the greenhouse with tips for gardening under glass from RHS Hyde Hall's very own Matthew Oliver. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. Let's begin with Michael Marriott. Over the last 35 years, Michael has visited and planted hundreds of spectacular rose gardens around the world. He is one of the most passionate experts on roses in all their diversity. And with the RHS, Michael has just released a book called simply Roses, an inspirational guide to choosing and growing the best roses. I've admired Mr Marriott's work from afar, particularly the very impressive Queen Mary's Rose Garden in Regent's Park. It's one of my favourite rose gardens. I used to work nearby and it's absolutely glorious in summer. Michael's book is a joyous celebration of roses. Let's let Michael explain why they deserve a place in every garden. I'm Michael Marriott. I'm a rose expert. I'm uh, retired from David Austin Roses and now do private work in the rose world and run along with my partner, Todd Garden Tours. Roses are easily the most garden-worthy of all plants. And after all, if you think about it, you know, what other plant can potentially have the most beautiful flower, fantastic fragrance, flower for five or six months of the year, or even longer in a warmer climate, and be easy to look after? There's no other plant that can even start to touch it for all those different attributes. One of the crucial parts, of course, of roses is their fragrance and their famed 
for that. And actually, apart from the tropical epiphytic orchids, there's no other plant that has such a wide range of completely different fragrance types as a rose. For any fragrance that you want to appreciate in the garden, whether it's a rose or any other plant, is to go along with an open mind. I always compare it to sort of tasting wines. So I think it's very important that you go along with an open mind and not just give it a quick sniff, but as good wine tasters do, try and savor it. Give several sniffs to try and appreciate what's there. And it doesn't matter if if you can't identify it, just appreciate it for what it is. The Lady Emma Hamilton is a wonderful example of a really superb fragrance. I always uh, encourage people to smell it and they always came up with a smile on their face because it's actually a fragrance that is very easily appreciated and also very delicious. It's a very obviously very fruity fragrance, but actually it varies quite a lot from day to day or hour to hour or month to month. So it can be often very citrusy, but then sometimes it can be more just a generally fruity fragrance. And then sometimes it has this wonderful tropical fruits fragrance like guavas and lychees. And then that's really delicious. And of course, smelling roses is very good for you. It has this magical ability to raise your spirits, but at the same time, calm you down. So yeah, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I've spent <laughs> many hours, I was, tell this bit of a joke that the worst jobs I had at the nursery was when I had to walk around all day long with Robert Kalkin, our, our rose nose, smelling roses all day long. I mean, <laughs> what a dreadful job to have to do, right? <laughs> the fantastic scent of roses is one I'm very familiar with. At junior school, we made rose water. It wasn't very successful, though my mum did pretend it was nice, but at least I appreciated rose scent early. But did you know that the natural habit of many wild roses is to scramble through trees? That's what their fawns are for. In my garden, I have several trees, and in one of them, a lovely rose called Paul's Himalayan Musk. It's a mighty rambling rose that grows about eight metres high, surges up to the top of my trees, flowering just once in early summer. And Michael has some brilliant insight and advice on just this topic. Growing roses through trees, it can be absolutely magnificent. Again, it's very important to match the vigour of your rose with the size of the trees. So if you planted a very, very vigorous variety, you know, like Rambling Rector or Kissgate or something like that, then it would very quickly smother a small tree and it would kill it off. And then after a few years, that tree would sort of fall over. So choose the right variety for that tree and what will happen it'll grow up through the tree you might need a little bit of help a bit of guidance in the first two three years but once it gets going it'll grow up through the tree and then the flowers will hang down in the most beautiful festoons and a lot of those varieties that are particularly good for growing for trees have the delicious musky fragrance and that fragrance is the one that really wafts on the air very easily and so you might be several yards, metres away from a rose. And you can you, know, you smell something and you look around and you'll see this wonderful rose uh, growing away. And uh, if you get up close, actually, sometimes it smells of cloves, you know, the spice cloves. The ramblers are better. Climbers, not so good because their growth tends to be rather stiff and so it's not so elegant. So the ramblers are better. But there's, there's all sorts of different shapes and sizes of ramblers. Some will only grow three or four metres tall, 10, 12 feet or so, and others will grow right up into great big trees. The most famous one of the lot is Kifsgate, Rosa Philippe's Kifsgate, which is grown to the top of a huge copper beech tree at Kifsgate Court 
in Oxfordshire, I think. And uh, that grows about 60 feet tall. And that has single flowers. So just five petals and it's white. And it's not just the flowers. Uh, the flowers are very beautiful. It's covered in flowers but then it's covered in hips afterwards. And so you get this magnificent display of hips in the autumn, which can actually last right through the winter if you have the right variety. So yeah, it's a wonderful thing to do. And the ramblers are so beautiful and so tough as well. Very beautiful. If training roses through trees is not something you're able to do, Michael's got some useful advice to planting roses in a home garden. One of the most important things when you're choosing a rose is to make sure it's the right space for that position. And when you buy a rose, whether it's a bare root one or one in the container, it's likely to be you know, a small plant. But check carefully what the potential dimensions are because you might find it'll grow much too big for that space and then just become a menace. So if you've got a small garden, then there's lots of varieties that will only grow 12, 18, 24 inches, you know, up to 60 centimetres tall and about the same across or even less. Or you can put them in containers, of course. They're very easy to grow in containers. They're smaller varieties. And that's especially important, too, for climbers because gardeners are very impatient and they want to have that wall or that fence or that obelisk covered quickly. So they choose a variety that's too vigorous. And, of course, what happens, it gets to the top of the wall very quickly and then just carries on going and then just becomes a real menace and uh, it's difficult to control. You won't get so many flowers. So... Be patient. Some varieties are pretty awful. They get a lot of disease and not very easy to look after, but there's other varieties which are fantastically tough and reliable and very healthy and very easy to look after. So the most important thing is actually preparing the ground before you plant them. And if you do that and you've chosen a good variety, then the rest is dead easy. A bit of pruning, a bit of fertilizing, a bit of deadheading, and you've got an absolutely glorious plant in your garden. Thank you, Michael Marriott. To dive further into the glorious world of roses, be sure to pick up Michael's brand new book, RHS Roses, an inspirational guide to choosing and growing the best roses, which is out now. Now, taking a quick break from roses, a couple of weeks ago, we began a new series of pieces on greenhouse gardening with Gareth Richards. Well, this week, and on Gareth's recommendation, we're heading to RHS Garden Hyde Hall to a very special glasshouse in the Global Growth Vegetable Garden. There, horticulturalist Matthew Oliver grows about 350 different species of edible plants and is a bit of a master of greenhouse growing. OK, so my name is Matthew Oliver. I'm a horticulturist at RHS Garden Hyde Hall and specifically I work in the Global Growth Vegetable Garden, which has been running for about five years now. Five years, I think we're in, coming into our sixth growing season. And my job in that garden is to grow a massive variety of different edible plants, so not just traditional grow-your-own allotment type plants, you know, peas and carrots and potatoes. Also got to grow lots and lots of unusual edibles, we're up to 350 different species of edible plant now. The garden's divided into four continent areas and I have to grow the plants in the continent area in which they originate from. And that includes a central glasshouse in the garden where we do a lot of traditional glasshouse crops. So today I was going to focus on the glasshouse and the crops we grow inside it. It's quite a unique glasshouse, a bit like the rest of the garden. 
in the sense the garden's circular and the glass house in the centre of it is octagonal, which is highly unusual shape to have a glass house. It was made bespoke for us. It came from Hartley Botanic, who are based up in Manchester and attend all the RHS shows. It is, from memory, 14 metres across the diameter and about seven metres high. And at the top it has what you can only really describe as being like a bell tower with vents that open up at the top and have a double set of doors at the north entrance and the south entrance and the central path. So the visitors come into the garden and the first thing they see is the glass house in the centre and the path leads them straight through into it. And the crops we grow inside, a massive range, but I try to focus upon like the traditional glass house crops. The bed areas inside, each bed it's approximately 30 square metres, so 60 square metres bed area total, and we're growing in the soil. And the crops I tend to focus on are we do lots of tomatoes, specifically the cordon or indeterminate tomatoes. Don't really do any of the determinate or bush varieties. We do lots of chilies, a whole different range, probably about 40 chilli plants each year. Try and look at uh, the really, really hot ones right through to the mild little ones that you grow in a small pot that go on your windowsill. Cucumbers we do, melons, okra, aubergines, and then we grow a few unusual ones that people won't have seen before. Ones I do most years are the West Indian gherkin, Cucumis anguria. I'll do watermelons as well. You don't often see grown in this country, I suppose. Not generally warm and hot enough. Uh, so a whole range and with varying degrees of success. The weirdest thing, I think the Kiwano, this African horned melon probably is up there. It was never really, really productive, but we did get fruit off of it. And if you go online and Google it and look up what the fruit looks like, it, it looks like it's from another planet. It looks like an alien fruit. It's sort of this oblong, egg-shaped fruit with soft horns all over the skin and this kind of bright orange colour with like paler yellow and red speckled through it. And when you cut it open, it's like jelly inside. It's really, really odd. Like, you've never seen anything like it. And the plants went bananas. I grew it for a couple of years and one of the years was in that heat wave of 2018. It's a scrambling climber, and my God, it went crazy. It was like a triffid. I was in every week hacking it back with secateurs and shears just to keep it under control. It was mad. If I'd let it go for it, it would have taken over the whole greenhouse, I think. So one of the joys of having a glass house of this shape is that we can grow lots of crops that perhaps wouldn't grow very well outside in a British summer. Now, our summers at Hyde Hall here in Essex are generally getting pretty good. Last year was the exception, not the rule, in the sense that it was quite overcast and wet and not much sun. In my time here, generally our summers are very hot and very dry. It's the nighttime temperatures that we'd struggle to control, and that's where growing tropical, heat-loving plants in a glasshouse is easier. So that's where the main benefit of glasshouse growing comes from, is those real heat lovers 
are humidity lovers, you're more likely to find success in the greenhouse. So if you want to have a go at growing some of these uh, more tropical heat-loving plants at home, some tips I've got for you would be don't start the seeds off too early. If you don't have heating, or you don't want to pay the electric bill to heat your glass house, which is a big issue these days, then you're much better off waiting until probably early May before you plant anything or buy anything. Because any earlier than that, you are at risk of these tender plants being frosted and having a growth check, if not being killed. So that'd be my first tip, is to get your timings right. My second tip is watering under glass can be critical. It's easier for me because we are growing in soil beds, so the plants have the opportunity to develop a really big root system and therefore more resilient to fluctuations in water level. Now, if you wanted to grow some of these plants and you were doing it seriously and you knew you wanted to do it every year, personally, I would advise that you would have a glass house with soil beds in because it's easier. It gives you a margin for error and perhaps you could go on holiday for a week in August and your plants would probably survive just fine even if you didn't get one of your neighbours in to water it for you. The flip side of that is if you didn't have soil beds then you have to grow in pots, containers or grow bags and therefore you'd have a lot of plant for a very small root system and in really hot weather, the height of summer, on a really hot day, you probably need to be in there watering twice a day in order to stop them drying out completely and therefore the management of it and the man hours and the attention to detail you need to put in is probably greater than if you're growing in soil beds. So that'd be my other tip. There is a downside to growing in soil beds and that is you've got to be a little bit careful about making sure they don't go dry and stale over winter otherwise effectively the soil could just lose its all biology in it if you just strip your plants out in November and then leave it for six months and then come back. We get around that by growing winter crops in there, winter salads or cover crop of green manure and keeping the soil irrigated. One of the plants that would be well worth a try if you've not done them before, it is achievable for the home gardener is to give melons a go. Now, if you've never eaten homegrown melon, then you've never eaten melon, in my opinion, um, because the stuff you get in the supermarket is incomparable to what you can do yourself. Even with a bog standard variety, the taste is incredible. Now, I have managed to grow melons outside at Hyde Hall before, but it's a lot easier if you grow them under glass. Now, you can do this two ways. You can plant the plants and let them vine and spread along the ground. We would always start them off in April. Any earlier than that is too early. And for your melons to be ripening in August, you can let them spread across the ground, vining plants, or like we do, we can train them. They won't necessarily do it themselves, but you can train them up a string or up some netting. I grow them exactly the same way as I grow cucumbers. So plant them in the ground, train one stem up a string, once it reaches the top, cut the top out, and as the side shoots develop, that's where you'll see the male and female flowers. They have separate male and female flowers. 
I let the side shoots grow until we see a female flower. I let them carry on growing until I see signs of that female flower has been pollinated and you've got a fruit swelling. Once you've got pollination, well then trim that side shoot one leaf beyond where that fruit is. If you're growing them up, you do need to support them with something. They'll get very heavy and will break off the plant if you don't support them. I went to the lengths of like making special nets. Someone taught me how to make nets. So we made our own little sacks to support them. But you could use anything. Last year I saw people using uh, COVID face masks to support their melons, which I thought was very ingenious. A pair of tights, anything, I suppose. I've cut up hessian sacks and tied string in the corners before as a way to do it. The only thing you need to be careful of when growing melons is powdery mildew. That can be a bit of a problem. So you need to keep the plants well irrigated. Don't let them dry out too much. And if you do see problems with mildew, a product called SB Plant Invigorator is quite good to stop it spreading around. That's a foliar spray and some cultivars I would recommend because some are easier than others. There's one called Outdoor Wonder. It sounds silly growing that under glass, but that's probably the one most suited to the UK climate. Then I've grown one called Alvaro, which is pretty good. And one recently that's come onto my radar that I've grown the last couple of years because the taste is fantastic. Introduced by burpee seeds, this one called Mango Mel, which I'd recommend for flavour. There are lots of heirloom melons out there as well. They're not as resistant to some of the diseases, but there's one called Green Nutmeg, which you can get like heritage variety, and that one's very good as well. But yeah, well worth a go, and you'll know when they're ripe, because you'll walk into your greenhouse first thing in the morning, and the smell of melon will just hit you in the face, and it smells fantastic. Once they start packing out that smell, that's when they're ripe. But a few other tips are, You'll just see the skin start to crack around the, where the stem is. And then if you just, with your thumb, ever so gently squeeze the bottom of the fruit, if it's got a little bit of give in it, that's when it's ripe. And you definitely want to pick them when they're ripe. If you leave them too long, they start to ferment a little bit and lose all their flavour. But if you get it right, my God, you've never tasted anything like it. So I hope you found that useful. A couple of tips for you there that you could try at home. Please do come along to Hyde Hall this summer. July and August is probably when the glasshouse is looking at its very best. If you come along this year, you'll see the usual wide range of tomatoes, melons, all those kinds of things. But I'm also growing peanuts this year. And I always have a go at growing sesame as well. And that really is a challenging thing to grow in the UK. So if you want to see something really difficult, come along and see how I'm doing this year with the sesame plants. Thanks to Matthew Oliver. What a brilliant ode to growing melons. I think there's still just time to get melon seeds going. Plant them now in somewhere warm and bright, and they should be good strong plants are planting out in early June, and you should expect a crop in early autumn. Otherwise, look for melon plug plants by mail order, and many garden centres also offer a limited range of melon plants in three inch pots, and you can plant those out from the middle of May. You don't even need a greenhouse as in the south at least, you can grow them under cloches or fleece. I grew a trial of melons in cold frames at Wisley, and they did very successfully. Admittedly, it was a nice warm summer. I really enjoyed hearing Matthew talk about melons. 
And watch this space, because he'll be back soon to share top tips on growing beefsteak tomatoes, a tasty but tricky crop. And in my own greenhouse at home, I'm busy potting up tomatoes, peppers and aubergine plants. And yes, I'll have a couple of melon plants and a cucumber or two as well. But first of all, all my young transplants will be moved outside and put under fleece. I hope to get them planted by June and I'll be sharing my progress with you. But for now, let's dive back into roses, shall we? As you may have heard, every rose has its fawn. Which is why we're heading to RHS Wisley in Surrey to join our expert advisory team to troubleshoot some of the most common rose growing problems. My name's James Lawrence. I'm a Principal Horticultural Advisor based at Wisley and I'm here with Nikki Barker, who's a Senior Advisor, and with Julie Henderson, who's also on the advisory team. And we're here just to talk a little bit about roses because throughout the spring and summer we do get quite a lot of questions coming in on topics of roses and a lot of those can be selection based topics so roses that we might recommend and then we do get a few about general cultivation so how to grow roses and a few problems that people might have with roses as well so let's start with Nikki how about a couple of recommend uh, so many roses how do you choose it's really really difficult isn't it because they can do so many different jobs so there's the the hybrid teas and floribundas which we're, we're quite used to they're in tend to be in more formal beds but there's loads of shrub roses as well that, that are much bigger they tend to be highly scented there's ground cover roses there's climbing roses there's patio roses there's rambling roses ramblers tend to be much more vigorous they will cover a bigger area climbing roses tend to be repeat flowering rambling roses you normally get one massive amount of flower for three, four weeks, and that's it. Yeah, one of my favourites is Rosa Dortmund. It is a climber, and it's, it's bright red flowers with white centres, and it's a single flower, so it's very good for pollinators. I first heard of this rose. I used to garden for somebody who had it climbing all over his garage, and I'd prune it for him once a year. And he said, I've had this rose for years, and it's never got black spot. So when I was choosing a new rose for my garden, I chose that, and it really was very resistant to black spot. It had very dark green, shiny, glossy leaves, which did feel that they were less prone to having black spot. And, and it's interesting, you, you mentioned black spot there, and you know, we, we are going to talk a little bit about some rose problems. And Nikki, lots of people have roses that suffer from black spot. Is, is there any advice that you can give to people on, on how to try and minimise that? Black spot is a fungal disease. It's worse some years than others, and it's worse in some roses than others. Some roses are more resistant, though it's important to remember that actually roses that maybe were bred for resistance 10, 15 years ago will probably be less resistant now. They do tend to lose that resistance over time. So there are, as Julie says, some roses that do appear to be more resistant. Uh, ground cover roses, for example, yeah. seem to be really resistant to black spots, uh, like Flower Carpet, Rosa Kent, the County Series. Being really clean and tidy does help. Yes. So when you get a rose with black spot and it's, it, it, all the leaves are falling up, sweep those leaves up because the fungal spores are there and they will stay in the soil. So get rid of them, bag them up and dispose of them. Okay, and it's, it's not safe to compost them yourself at No, home? no, it isn't because you will just 
be giving the spores somewhere to live over winter and then pop back onto your roses in the spring. So it's quite important to dispose of them in your green waste bin if you have one um, or if you're allowed to uh, incinerate, you know, have a little bonfire, then that's a good way of getting rid of them. It's worth pointing out that the council green waste, when, when they compost things, the, the heat generated yeah, is so absolutely, much greater than that you can kills most home, of the fungal that it will spores. kill the spores. So that's, that's the main difference there. What would you say are the other kind of rose issues that we seem to get come through on the, on the, on the advice line or on, online, Julie? One thing we do get asked about a lot is roses that don't seem to be flowering much or all the flowers are at the top and they're very bare at the base. So I would say that a way to get around that is good pruning. So with climbing roses, you want to be renewing the growth regularly. So each year over the winter, cut off about a third of the stems of the oldest stems right at the base and then that is going to encourage fresh new stems to grow up. What about any insect problems Julia? Roses can be prone to a few things? They're very prone to aphids especially the fresh new growth as, as it starts to grow. If you get them early you can just squish them between your finger and thumb and then that reduces the population and make sure that the the garden wildlife already in your garden ladybirds can come along and eat them and it gives them something to eat so it keeps them alive but it makes sure it's at a level that is not damaging to your roses so keep watching them and get them early and, and sometimes as well that growth that new growth if we have a cold snap it's not as strong so it, because it's a bit weaker it tends to get colonized by the aphids so what Julie was saying about pruning is really important pruning roses makes them healthier so they're less likely to suffer from pests and disease so correct pruning and we've got loads of really good videos and step-by-step -step guides on our web pages on how to do the different types of roses. And, and one thing I have noticed we do get asked quite a lot of questions about whether or not people can replant roses in an area where they've had old existing roses and Nikki what, what's the advice there? Rose replant disease is not hugely understood so best thing to think is as long as your roses were healthy they died of old age then you could pl certainly plant in the same area though it's a good idea to add plenty of organic matter to the area and, and to refresh the soil maybe a little bit don't plant in exactly the same spot you know even if you're planting a meter away it will make a difference um, if you've had an area though where there's been quite a lot of roses died for no apparent reason i would suggest that don't replant in that area and i haven't mentioned my favorite rose yet which i'll get in and that's a shrub type rose and it's rosa gertrude sometimes also known as Osborne, and that's a lovely double pink scented really lovely strong scent and quite a long-lasting flower, really. They can go right through summer and into autumn. What about roses that might give you interest later in the year, but not necessarily through flower? So maybe something that produces hips? Anyone know of any we would recommend well, for Yeah, hips? those are Vagosa cultivars, those are canine cultivars. They're all really good for that, actually, aren't they? Yeah, there's also ro Rosa, there's one called Rosa geranium, strangely enough. But the hips on that are kind of really elongated and really dark scarlet red. Um, so, so quite a good one to grow for hips as and well. And again, you can just cut them back quite hard in the spring once the hips have all been eaten by the birds and they put up loads of growth and flower, don't they? And single flowers generally that are really good for pollinators too. So the only other thing I wanted to cover 
with roses was we do get quite a lot of roses, pictures that are sent in to us that maybe the leaf are starting to look a bit yellow and maybe the veining is starting to show in the leaf. What do we normally indicate, that normally yeah, indicates? That could be a nutrient deficiency in the soil. Sure. So mostly when you're growing plants in the ground, shrubs in the ground, the soil has enough nutrients in there, but occasionally there might be a deficiency. So if you are seeing yellowing leaves on your roses, it might be good to give it a, a general fertiliser in the spring. Something like a, a Vitax Q4 is a good one. So if it's yellowing leaves, it could be short of iron or short of nitrogen. So a, a general purpose fertiliser. Great, thank you. Thanks to James Lawrence, Nikki Barker and Julie Henderson. Well, that's about it for this episode of the podcast. This week in the garden, I'm going to be sowing and planting vegetables and flowers, clearing away old crops left over from winter, cutting bunches of asparagus and doing a bit of lawn mowing. But I'll leave some unmown to enjoy the wild flowers in late summer. And my final tip is to watch out for those vicious little late frosts. They can be particularly damaging to tender new growths and blossoms. And if one is forecast, rush out and cover what you can, strawberry flowers for example, with an old curtain or piece of sacking to keep the frost off for the night. So until next time, from me, Guy Barter, thanks for listening and happy gardening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.